Welcome to Homefront on Missouri Grassroots Radio. I'm Cynthia Davis, your host. As a writer, speaker, and former legislator, we discuss limiting government, fiscal responsibility, and fair taxation. I'm a mother of seven and a wife of one for over three decades, so I bring you my personal experience. And now it's time for Homefront with Cynthia Davis. Everybody who loves fighting for home and making the home what it needs to be in America. We have a very special guest tonight. David Usher joins us from the Center for Marriage Policy, and he is going to talk about the Supreme Court decision and how it affects us economically and what's happening around the country on the on the marriage avenue with what's going on lately. So. Good, good evening, David. Thank you for joining us tonight. Hi, Cynthia. It's great to be aboard. Yeah. Well, hey, um, we're pretty excited because there's a lot of news since you were on last, and it really helps to have somebody who's financially astute and keeping an eye on the radar screen. Not everybody sitting home has time to pay attention to all these details, and yet, Ten years later, we're going to look back on what happened in the summer of 2013 as being moder- you know, history in the making. And, and people are going to ask, what did we do? Now, when Roe v. Wade passed, I was 13 years old, and I don't really remember much about it. I don't remember anything about it. It was years later when I was old enough to realize that Something in America had transformed the way people perceive life, and it was irreversibly and irrevocably. I mean, we changed our from then on. We had a decision about you know we how we're going to respect life or not, and if it's legal or not, and that that was the beginning. I predict that in the long range of things, people will ask us years later what happened to destroy marriage in america and certainly up until now the worst thing that happened was the no-fault divorce but that happened on a state level i believe that someday we're going to look back on this supreme court decision and ask what really happened so what do you think happened well what happened and this is kind of a long slide ever since Roe v. Wade and uh, the, the entire concept of feminism, which really is a polytheistic um, form of uh, non-religion uh, that pretty much be, uh, worships gov- big government. Uh, and um, I'll just keep 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 it simple and just focus on that. And w- what happened was over the years, uh, the left came up with these. The idea of, of a gender construct, which uh, ideologically separates what uh, people do with the the traditional biblical and biological uh, functions the, of men and women, and uh, despite uh, many years of brainwashing, 
uh, by feminists, we still see that most women want to marry and have kids, and most men want to be responsible fathers and husbands. But uh, the problem is, is that because of the size of government and the economic power of government, is there um, a plantation system has arisen that basically pays women to not marry, and it pays them very large sums of money. And the lower the income group you're in, the more they pay. And uh, this, uh, over time, gave rise to the welfare state that everybody's complaining about, which is now the largest line item in both the federal and state budgets. So it's a massive problem. And and how the whole game... and you know, everybody's going, well, gee, what does this have to do with gay marriage? Well, it has everything to do with gay marriage. Um, and you have to understand that that gay marriage really has nothing to do with one's sexual orientation. What they what they have sought all along and got is is laws that require the state to marry any two human beings that wander in the door, regardless of sexual preference and uh, that, that's been their goal all along um, and that is to uh, create the right for any two women to marry each other and people are going well gee what's wrong with that well everything's wrong with that because when two women marry each other and have kids the kids are going to come from someplace besides marriage and in most cases they're going to come uh, via one-night stands. And what that means is in most cases when two women marry each other, the welfare state is the automatic third party to the marriage contract. You have a three-party marriage where government is immediately the statutory third party, and uh, that is true in both state and federal laws. And so because of the and, and of course the problem that we face is that um, conservatives never litigated that. They never looked at it. Um, you know, uh, they are. You know, we argued. They're not they. They're we. Um, we argued morals, tradition, history. Yeah. While the other side was litigating and screaming about equality for the last twenty years, and uh, it finally evoked a ruling from the Supreme Court. Uh, just talking about how gays are, you know, being uh, receiving very unequal treatment. Which and is very hard for reasonable people. We want so bad to be fair-minded, honest, honorable, and most people who call themselves conservatives, people who call themselves grassroots, we don't, I mean, we don't have even a thought of treating people unequally. It just doesn't, it, it doesn't match up. So for a person to call us, uh, accuse us of not treating everybody equally is inflammatory and not productive, but at the same time, everybody's so quick to acquiesce that, oh, I don't want to be called that. That would really be bad. I, we all know intuitively that that's bad to be unfair. So when what what do we need to know about the Supreme Court and and the the equality argument? 
Well, the, the Supreme Court ruling is really um, the biggest call to conservative action that I have. I'm not belittling, I'm not belittling Roe v. Wade. Uh, I'm just saying that this is uh, of the same scope and stature, but it's not a final decision. Um, a lot of people are going, well, gee, this is a cooked goose. Well, um, some things have changed. Um, I've been begging some of the uh, conservative groups, as a matter of fact, all the big ones that are doing litigation, to at least include, if not lead with, an equality argument proving that only heterosexual marriage can be constitutional. And I've got three articles out there. The first one was uh, published in 2004, and the most recent one was in 2010. But I've got a new article that's titled Our Last Chance to Save Traditional Marriage that's currently uh, out to the weekly standard for publication. And uh, I didn't even send it there. Um, um, uh, Mike McManus, the marriage saver, sent it there. <laughs> And with a due publish recommendation, um, but you know, what, what I've done is um, one of the things I learned is that when I'm working on public policy, I have to walk, you know, I have to put the Bible down and just think in terms, of, you know, talk in plain English, talk in terms, think in terms of equal rights. What is the policy going to do? How is it going to shape human behavior? And then if you know, if the policy shapes human behavior this way is it going to result in massive inequalities and unfortunately uh, because of the way gay marriage works or same-sex marriage forget the word gay <laughs> the way same-sex marriage same-sex marriage works uh, it will create uh, three different classes of marriage that all have very significantly different um, Parental rights, procreational rights, procreational abilities, economic rights, uh, political rights, and so forth and so on. And uh, of course, anything that immediately creates three very disparate classes is is probably not headed towards equality. <laughs> so we have a very strong argument there, and um, I've been um, begging some of the groups to at least include an equal rights argument and they just all said well gee we don't need to well maybe it's, it's because yeah maybe they just don't understand it because i mean uh, people for the most part are trying very hard to be you know simple and well, how I, do you explain it to somebody who doesn't understand um well i I, well, I have to realize that, that, you know, all the litigation we've done so far has become, been framed from the perspective of who we are. We, we're we're Bible-believing Christians. We believe in marriage. It's tradition. It's morals and history. That is who we are. And so it's perfectly natural to uh, want to lead with that when we walk into court where some idiots are... <laughs> Trying to turn turn marriage into a, just another governmental welfare state enterprise, um, <clears throat> but the problem is. Um, um, so you know, I'm, not, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just saying that we did what we would expect us to do. <laughs> uh, but this last Supreme Court ruling, which uh, uh, you know, all along I've said that 
uh, you know, I noticed that in the Prop 8 case, when that ruling first, um, uh, when that case was first filed, um, I was fascinated by the fact that there were all probably 25 or 30 amicus briefs filed by people on the left that all focused on equality. But the Prop 8 case, uh, <clears throat> the, the actual litigation presented to the court, had nothing to do with equality. And so that's the first sign that <clears throat> that what they're trying to do, um, and just so people understand how courts work, um, all courts sit in equity. And what that means is that regardless, if, if you wander into court with some issue and the court sees a grave injustice being done that is not an issue presented to the court for a decision, uh, the court can go ahead and make an equitable ruling on its own motion. You know, they're not limited to ruling on the issues that are uh, the narrow issue that's presented to the court. And so that's what happened in California. And then, um, um, so that sent it up to the Supreme Court. And, um, of course, we got up there and and we just said the same things we said in the Supreme Court that we said in California and the other side screened equality and the Supreme Court did exactly what um, I hate to say this any first year law school student would predict um, you know if somebody makes a point in court and the other side doesn't does not counter the point effectively then they lose and that's what right. That the other side has been litigating equality for 15 or 20 years, and we've never filed one motion to counter that point. So, um, so now DOMA is gone, effectively, or at least a good chunk of it. The economic portion of it is gone, uh, which was is actually pivotal because marriage. Um, is there's there's three marriages um, rests on three legs. You have, of course, the uh, biblical leg, and um, then you have the social leg. Another that's what what marriage does to raise kids and socialize men and women, and so forth and so on. But the third leg um, is uh, on a part of the second leg is also the social political aspect of it. In other words, if you're married and you've got kids and you support your family, um, everybody up and down the street sees you as being a worthwhile human being, <laughs> you know. Um, but then the third leg, which is the critical one here, is the economic aspect of marriage. Mar- marriage has plays a um, pivotal role in the building of nations, the, the generation of economy, uh, in a, in an uh, arena where you really don't need many, much government support in the way of welfare, the families take care of themselves. And so, uh, but what happened was uh, in this Supreme Court ruling is the Supreme Court just peeled away the entire economic function of marriage and gave it to the welfare state. And right there, uh, my equal rights argument that. Uh, it looks like it's actually going to be taken up finally. My equal rights argument proves that they can't do that and still be within constitutional, in, anywhere near constitutional realms. 
Do you have some breaking news that you want to tell us about tonight? Well, it looks like, um, and a, a part of this article, which hasn't been published yet, is, is and I wrote it about uh, you know a week ago, um, it predicts that you know the next thing that's going to happen, there's going to be um, challenges to the state constitutional bans. And it happened much faster than I thought. Last week, there was immediately a federal court ruling in the state of Michigan ordering them to recognize the economic things that the Supreme Court laid out. And then there was another challenge filed by a um, state-level organization. And so it looks like Michigan is going to be the first and perhaps pivotal battleground yeah, you know what what's, what you're saying is we can come up with better arguments. We don't have to walk away with our tail between our legs feeling like we've blown it and they're outnumbering us now and we're going to lose again. I think what you're saying is that there's hope because there are better arguments to be had. If we want to argue traditions and morals, we're going to get creamed because not everybody has the same traditions or morals. If we want to go about it from a different element of right and wrong and what economically makes sense and what doesn't. Now, Michael Corte could not join us yet. He may be still coming. The big question he was going to fill us in on, and maybe you know almost as much anyway, can you tell us, he he actually went as far as saying, that there are already enough economic disadvantages by being married and if you factor in all the bonuses that come to single people that are that we will forego if we're married um all of the welfare there are people who are actually getting divorced because they can get medicaid if they're not married and they cannot get Medicaid if they are married. And he predicts that the homosexuals will find a day when they say, I don't want to be married because it's not advantageous. So all this hype making it appear that all they want is to be married may prove to be nothing more than hot air. Well, you have to understand that the whole same-sex marriage thing was never about gays in the first place. And uh, the first the first thing that came out about that that, that I have seen is a um, in the now National Times in 1988, um, uh, there was an edict that said that in order to, be, and, and this is a quote, uh, it says, uh, in, in order to be considered fully feminist, you have to identify as a lesbian. It didn't, doesn't mean you have to be one. You just have to identify and join in with the lesbian movement. And, uh, you know, um, you have to understand that National Organization of Women has been in a lot of trouble because, for many years, because, uh, you know, they argued, you know, women should not marry, you know, just <laughs> have a couple of kids out of wedlock, you know, get welfare, and they push for those kinds of supports. But the consequences of that is you have a lot of single moms who have to do it all. They're living in cities full of unsocialized males who are more, you know, just a lot of trouble, and it's pretty dangerous. 
And um, you know, when when you have to, when you're a single mom, and you got to raise one or two kids all by yourself, and then you got to work full time. Uh, that's that's not exactly the American dream, <laughs> you know. And so feminists are, are really in a huge problem because all, all these women did what they wanted them to do, and now they're mad at, the, at now, uh, and and they're looking for answers. And so uh, now's first response, and uh, they tried to do this in in the 1990s under Hillary Care. Uh, but, you know, both Hillary Care and Obamacare were, were just another welfare program for single moms. You know, at least half, if not 50, 70% of Obamacare is just free health care for single mothers and, ch- and children. And most people don't realize that, <laughs> oh, that Obamacare is, is, is really the biggest expansion of the welfare state uh, ever since its invention in 1963. But that's not good enough, you know, um, uh, for now, because you know, now is quite quite well aware that if any two women can marry each other and keep both their incomes and have um, the human, you know, uh, the labor redundancy of having two adults in a household, plus they get to keep their two incomes, plus two or three or four child support orders that are. Guaranteed by the by uh, the federal government um, in the form of welfare. Um, you know, uh, welfare is in advance on child support. Most people don't are not aware of that. That that made was that change was made in the 1996 welfare reforms. Uh, whenever the government hands out a dollar, it's put on the books as an advance on child support collections. And so a lot of people I found that out. Let me tell you one story when I was in the legislature. I had somebody a couple came to my bookstore and asked me this question. They had had some marital disharmony and separated and during that time while they were separated the wife went on welfare and got food stamps and Medicaid and other bonuses um, during while they were separated her her um, husband was ordered to pay child support he did then very happy ending to the story they got back together and um, they were able to reconcile patch things up piece it back together they're all living together now under one roof everything is lovely Except that the state of Missouri is still garnishing eleven hundred a month out of his paycheck, <laughs> and he came right. to me as the state representative and said, "Hey, you know what? There's a problem here. She's not on welfare anymore. I'm supporting her now." And so I contacted the Division of Child Support Enforcement and said, "What is the problem?" And they explained to me that they are entitled to be recompensed. He will be continue paying the child support and supporting his his wife and children physically under his roof until he pays back every dime that that, that he has cost the state of Missouri by the welfare his wife took. So I mean that's my own first hand story and. Phyllis Schlafly wrote an article recently about child support where she said, you know, if we're going to be honest about it, 
it's not as much support as it's punishment. It's it's a punitive measure to try and punish the non-custodial parent. And if it were truly child support, we would demand the same regulations on it that we ask, ask when the IRS reports are, are expected. Uh, when we try and claim something on your income tax, you have to have documentation. You have to show receipts. A parent, a custodial parent should be required to say, this is how much I spent on his food. This is how much I spent on soccer. This is a, a receipt for how much his broken leg cost. And when those receipts are provided demonstrating that the money actually went to the child, then it cannot effectively be called child support. Until then, it's not child support because the mom can use the money all on herself going to the bars or the dad, whoever has the child. Yeah, and $1,000 up... heroes and <laughs> what was trips that? to Las Vegas. And, <laughs> yeah, and there, okay. there's a lot of cases. Yeah, there's a... But but you see this is this is where the entire country has been snockered is um, what happens particularly in the lower income groups. I mean for this couple at least he's got a job and he can pay it and still support his wife, right? But in the lower income groups, uh, the way women see it is, gee, there's all this money here, I can get it. All I got to do is have a kid. And so they have a kid or two or three, and they get all this money. And um, But the problem is is that low-income men, there's absolutely no way that they're going to ever be able to pay that back. So what happens is the government gives out all these advances on child support collections that the government uh, can't collect back. And so, you know, everybody thinks, oh, well, there's all these deadbeat dads. Well, you know, if you're given uh, some, you know, uh, a single mother the equivalent of thirty or forty or fifty thousand dollars a year, uh, and trying to collect it back from somebody who, at best, qualifies for an eight or nine dollar an hour job working at a restaurant, you know, it doesn't take it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that that money's never going to get paid back. And so, in essence, uh, the cultural change, and uh, you have to just pretend you're living down in a poor part of the city. What is what has happened is that the role of men in in, in the lower income areas has changed very significantly. Men are not there to protect women. Men are not there to raise kids. The sole function of of, of a man is to qualify his woman for a welfare income. That's all he's good for. And 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 that's what happens. That that's why you see you know, they've we've had a number of cases here of men who get held up because they had twenty two kids with various women and they're very proud of it. Well of course, you know, those guys are proud of it because they've generated hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars of income for their community. <laughs> You know they're providers. They are the providers, and all they have to do is is uh, provide a woman with a baby, and then go hide out, and go, you know hide out someplace. You know, sell drugs, go live with somebody, uh, go live with a woman. Don't tell anybody where you're living, so the government can't find you. And then, of course, uh, the women tend to hide these guys 
they you know they tend to protect them. Um, so you know th- this is this is the milking of the American taxpayer and uh, us hardworking Americans who marry and do what we're supposed to do and save are just getting uh, eaten alive. So what is the solution? Well, um, the immediate task at hand is uh, to win in Michigan. And um, I contacted the Michigan Family Forum, um, uh, Dan Jarvis, who is uh the lead the lead guy uh he runs um Michigan Family Forum they're the ones who are going to have to the public um uh, the advocacy group that is going to lead the fight uh, defending uh the Michigan's constitutional and legislative bans and i spoke with him uh just this morning actually and he is all ears because he he knows that they they they're probably with what they've got they they just don't have a way to win, and so they're looking at the equality argument uh, right now. And then I have a, a, a very well known constitutional scholar who's taken the, this article, you know, the points that I have in the article, and is writing them up in the form of a uh, a, a draft brief. Uh, which we will, uh, Center for Marriage Policy will give it to people who need it. Um, and what is that website for the Center for Marriage Policy? Uh, that is marriagepolicy.org. Marriagepolicy.org. You can go there to see David Usher's picture, to find out what the Center for Marriage Policy is doing, to see even my picture. <laughs> And what we are working, what is the main mission of the Center for Marriage Policy? Um, predominantly, and we we kind of got into the gay marriage thing just because we had to, um, but it, it's to to come up with um, social policies that actually work for couples. Um, you know, for example, if somebody's wife or husband is a drunk. Or a pill popper or something, which is that—that's actually the number one cause for marital breakup or relationship breakup. Uh, and the money problems, uh, you know, substance abuse is a huge problem within families. So uh, we had a Missouri bill that didn't make it quite, it didn't get passed this year, but it will go next year. Um, it makes it po- uh, makes it possible for you to get a targeted restraining order. It's called a family intervention order that removes your substance abusing spouse from the home and the judge looks at him and says okay uh, you get well you get clean and dry and you're not coming back until you're clean and dry so we kind of put the the focus on recovery you know you, we we uh, government has a very heavy hand and so we're just using that heavy hand to back the responsible spouse and to encourage recovery but it's also fully constitutional and very conservative and, liber- and even libertarian because uh, our legislation does not give government the power to do anything. It's whatever you and your wife are happy with. Well, let's talk to the libertarians for a minute because we do have quite a few in our audience. And they want to know. Uh, I, I, will, I will read you a letter. I get my own mailbag of hate from time to time, and this is one of my uh, 
people who I, I have a, a lot of people who've been reading my newsletter for years. And when we talk about marriage, we tend to hit a sore spot with some people. So this libertarian follower of mine wrote this. Ms. Davis, reading your mass mailings over the last couple of years, it has become clear to me that regardless of the name of your political party, you have as little interest in governance based on and limited by the Constitution as any nanny state liberal or wholly subsidized conservative. In the most recent article, you deplore a Supreme Court decision for not being based on impartial legal jurisprudence, yet your own position is similarly based on your own personal moral code and religious viewpoint rather than any unbiased examination of the law. I feel that at this point I've read a sufficient amount of your missives to determine that you and most likely by extension your party do not want in any way to represent the best interests of liberty and in fact are part and parcel of what is inherently wrong with this society. Please remove me from your mailing list and peddle your fundamentalists. <laughs> uh, then there's a, uh, he says, status claptrap elsewhere. I'm not sure what that is. But here's my point that, um, of course, I'm happy to remove anybody from the list, and I'm happy to put anybody on the list. You can put yourself on the list by going to votecynthia.com and read all kinds of other interesting pieces. But give me your spin. Why are the libertarians afraid that marriage is uh, a, a government issue? Let me ask you this. Is marriage anything that should involve the government whatsoever? Well, um, that, that, actually, that's about four questions all wrapped up into one. Um, first, you have to understand that in the, the Libertarian Party is not a cohesive body of people who all have a common goals. Goal, uh, common goals. Uh, you have a lot of liberals in there who they want they want to be able to be liberals. They just don't want to have the costs that go with big government. And so they're fighting the taxes, the high taxes. So you got liberals that are in the Tea Party saying, we want to be able to do whatever we want, and government's supposed to take care of us, blah, blah, blah. We just don't want to pay the taxes. And that portion of the Tea Party is a lost cause, and they probably know it. <laughs> uh, and, and so, you know, there's no sense even trying to talk to them because they, uh, but we have to, we have to be aware that they are there. And that they uh, do, in, in in a way, discombobulate the Tea Party and make, you know, keep the Tea Party from focusing on something that is going to work. Then you've got um, a fair number, uh, and I, I have seen some problems with this. There are a fair number of higher income Tea Party people who can afford to not be married. In other words, they make their own money and they don't really, um, and, and and they're afraid that that the policies that we're working on are going to make people get married or, or force them into a marital trap. And that's yes, absolutely not that's absolutely not the case. Um, you know, it, it'll work for anybody. I mean, even even if you're a uh, uh a tea party uh a woman in the tea party making two hundred thousand dollars a year 
and you just want to have a boyfriend, but you know if if he's a drunk, you, you we've got a tool. You can get him into treatment so that he can remain, you know, stay being your boyfriend. You know, uh, but but well, we do know. The, if, let me ask you this: If the libertarians believe that marriage is none of government's business, how are they going to feel about the Supreme Court decision that now allows people who are homosexuals to receive social security benefits well the, and, but, and income tax filing benefits well and i you know i i essentially agree that marriage is not government government's business uh which immediately points to you know why do we have this massive welfare state destroying it if if marriage is is none of the government's business then why how do we how can anybody stand there and and stand um stand aside while the government's busy destroying marriage because marriage uh you know if if marriage is just left to do what it has done throughout history uh you know marriage is what takes two very different sexes and turns it into one cooperative cooperative human race moving forward to raise children to build nations to build an economy uh with without big government and so um if if you know um that's that's my response to them is hey you know um we're not going to you know we're not out to make people get married that's not the point we've got to stop destroying marriage because the problems that that everybody's complaining about in the tea party which are high taxes and big government um you, you have to real people just don't under i don't think most people realize that uh, social expenditures are the largest line item in the federal and state budgets. In Missouri, uh, we're spending 50% more on social services than we are on, on, on public education. <laughs> There's something really wrong with that picture, and uh, it wasn't. It was in 1991, I believe it was, when our expenditures for social services became greater than that for public education, and. And uh, so, uh, you know, Family Research Council put it this way, um, an article by Pat Fagan and uh, a couple of other of their better scholars, uh, they just said that we cannot tax spend or borrow away, borrow enough to resolve the problem of marriage absence. And that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. And, and part of why public education has become more expensive is because the school teachers are being expected to fill in some of the voids for the broken families as well. And uh, I remember, first let me encourage you, not all of our listeners are big fans of public education, but for those who are not in Missouri, Missouri has in the Constitution, a provision that demands that we must spend at least 25% of our budget on public education. Many states have exceeded that amount. Missouri, when I was in the legislature, had it hovering around 31 or 32% per year of the state budget. So to say that welfare is even more than that is a statement. And it goes back to what's the purpose of government anyway. And the reason the public schools are asking for more money is because 
it, it used to be compulsory when I first got elected. Um, public education was compulsory from the age of 8 to 16. The year after I left the legislature, they raised that to 17, and now they're trying to lower it on the beginning side so that you'll get to, um, you know, have kids become really the the property of the public schools from age three. Well, but that's the the entire. But see, that's government trying to replace marriage, and you can't. It, it does not work because. Uh, children who are raised in intact families, uh, you know, their parents make them study, and you know, you can't, you can't go, you don't, can't use the T-bird until you get your homework done. <laughs> and they make them go to bed at a reasonable hour so they can, when they get up in the morning, uh, they don't fall asleep, sleep all the way through school, and their clothes are washed, and so your kids go to school, they're, uh, you know, they're prepared for school, they're dressed for it, they're awake. And they're reasonably disciplined, but uh, in the parts of St. Louis uh, where uh, marriage absence rates are very high, what you see is there's so many kids that would just soon tell a teacher to go to hell as anything else. Uh, you know, teachers cannot raise kids and teach at the same time. I mean, the whole word education means to lead out. That's what the, it comes from the Latin educo, which means to lead out. And, and that's what teachers are supposed to do, prepare kids for the adult life by teaching them. Uh, teachers cannot teach while they're trying to discipline children. And they don't have the authority to do that, nor can they make up. If a kid comes to school and in a bad mood, uh, been using drugs, sleepy, with a bad attitude, there's nothing the teacher can do. <laughs> so, um, you know, we have to reverse the trend of marriage absence, uh, particularly in the lower income areas, uh, in order to make schools where uh, you can even get uh, test scores to where the schools can even, you know, that's the reason why you have so many unaccredited schools in St. Louis City is because it's impossible to teach the kids there. You just can't do it. And well, so and we've if, gotta... adults are, if adults are married to each other, they can focus their surplus energy on, on their children. And if they're not married to each other, then they might have so many distractions with their own social lives and the other adults. And, and whether it's good or bad, they're focused more on the other adults than their own children. In, right. in, it could happen, and 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 does. In it's immeasurable how that impacts children. But I'll tell you in my own life that having a husband around the house makes a big difference in the way my children behave. Well, you've got you got two two brains, four hands. You know, you have duplicity in the human. You have uh, you know enough human resources to do, to get it all done. Uh, but there is a point I want to back up to that you kind of edged on about the cost of how education. Um, one of the things that happened when, when, when I got out of high school in 1970, one of my options was to go to the Uni University of Missouri-Columbia, which I could have done for free if I just rented an apartment. <laughs> but because social expenditures have become so pressing, what happened was the state has been robbing funds that 
used to provide free college educations for anybody, even low low income kids. No, anybody could go down there when I was in 1970. You didn't have to get a scholarship. <laughs> and now, uh, you know, low income kids, uh, the only way to get, go there is to get a scholarship. And then a lot of kids in between end up taking out huge student loans and end up being saddled with a debt that would simply not be there if, if, uh, marriage were, were the social norm. I mean, that's the key. If, if marriage becomes a social norm, we could literally go back to, uh, free education at the University of Missouri system. Um, well, let me give you a terminology. First, I'd like to thank you for using your vocabulary correctly to just refer to marriage as as marriage. <laughs> I think a lot of people are getting confused by what you said. We're trying, trying to come out with three different kinds of marriage, and really there is only one kind of marriage. So since I read you my mailbox of hate, now let me read you my mailbox of love, I got another email from a constituent who wrote this. Your newsletters are good. Bless you. <laughs> Your latest one on marriage brings to mind a recent article by Dale O'Leary in which she said we should not fall into the trap of using the term traditional marriage because it opens the door for other interpretations, such as Imagine this, we have traditional homes, modern homes, colonial homes, brick homes. They may all be different, but are all legitimate homes. Not so with marriage. Dale O'Leary did not offer an alternative, which I propose. And this is my, my writer wrote, how about we call it true marriage by referencing the time-honored definition of marriage is true marriage. We are drawing a the line with an in-your-face expression which puts the other side on the defensive. Let's use the, the phrase, let's own the phrase true marriage and run with it. Now, th- that's the quote of my reader who likes to write that, and I'd like to get your thoughts. Well, that's the the pressure that we're facing. Um, you know, you have, a, like I say, a lot of uh, polytheistic belief systems out there that are trying to say that, well, you know, marriage is whatever people want to do, and, uh, you know, men can have babies, and women can be men, and all this, you know, um, <clears throat> this very uh, off-the-wall existential um, imaginations that, that somehow... Um, Various uh, non-government NGOs who are <laughs> financed by our federal dollars; these NGOs become economically attached to it, uh, and so you have a lot of non-governmental governmental agencies out there that actually make a living by destroying marriage. And so, people that that uh, can you name work, one name name an example of an NGO that's destroying marriage? Well, anybody who collects child support, there's all kinds of agencies that collect child support, and they make a living doing it. Um, Actually, CCI used to be the largest child support collection agency in the country, but um, um, it was also the largest gambling debt collection agency for Las Vegas. (laughs) 
kind of an interesting parallel there. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, uh, you have a lot of adoption agencies that uh you know they make their they make they they get $25,000 per child that they adopt out for doing literally nothing except a little bit of paperwork. And, and the so they are near and, and 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 most of these agencies just love divorce and illegitimacy because it provides an an endless a very high profit income stream. These are private companies that uh government outsources things to and and you've just got a um, um huge collection um of of uh, agencies that um you know uh we we call, we can think of them as being private businesses but they're not it's really a quangocratic or a very quangocratic arrangement where uh you end up with a big government where you have a lot of theoretically private businesses who actually urge more big government. Is there a way for the trend to reverse itself, though? Is there reasonably, with the societal decline we've seen, more children coming from broken homes than ever before or homes that never formed in the first place, how are our listeners going to have hope that we can do things better. How do we rebuild the home? Well, th- this will inevitably happen because, um, um, you know, m- um, m- the majority of our federal deficit just simply would not be there if marriage absence were, were not the social norm. And the dollar is so liquidated with all, you know, all the uh, quantitative easing that we've done, which, you know, um, Actually, made the marriage absence problem even worse because we we now have record numbers of people on food stamps, and um, and it's it's going to get worse uh, because of Obamacare. Now you've got a lot of companies that refuse to f- hire full time workers. They're going to hire bring people in as contractors or uh, or people that are working thirty hours a week or less. And that's, and I'm not just talking Walmart. I'm talking the state of Missouri. I just found out that last weekend that the Department of National Resources, uh, uh, Missouri Department Department of Natural uh, Resources (DNR) is cutting back the hours for all the young folks, the mostly young men that work there, to 30 hours a week. And so my question is this: If young men cannot get a full-time job and support a family, there will be no marriage. <laughs> so um, we are headed for a crash and burn. It, and nobody, can, you know, I can't tell you when it's going to happen. But, um, uh, but, you know, we're doing what we can, which is if, if we can defend successfully the challenges to Michigan's constitutional ban on gay marriage, that is a huge step forward. Because uh, the first thing that will happen is, you know, our equal, if our equal rights arguments prevail in Michigan, that will uh, go back to the Supreme Court on appeal. And then Justice Kennedy is going to get an equal rights argument that he can't turn around. <laughs> you know, we just have some education to do in the public forum, in the cultural forum, and I'm urging, uh, uh, you know, Phyllis and Maggie Gallagher, Phyllis Lafley and Maggie Gallagher, uh, I just spoke with her office uh, 
uh, you know, urging them to start talking about how marriage does create equality for everybody and small government. And, you know, we have to win the equality argument both in in the cultural forum and the legal forums. And so that's going to be a first step. In one sentence, how do we argue equality? Just for my lay people listeners out there, how do we explain it to our friends, our neighbors, and our, our parishioners? Um, the, uh, I can't put it in one sentence, if, but if you go to marriagepolicy.org and scroll about halfway down the page on the left, you'll see an article titled Why Gay Marriage is Unconstitutional, and that is a... Uh, uh, the 2010 argument that I published in 2010. The new argument's even better, but nice. that will kind of give them a, that will give them kind of a handle on where we're headed with this thing. Um, That's good. Thank you for uh, getting a handle on it. And then keep an eye keep an eye on the Weekly Standard because uh, uh, I think we got a pretty good shot at getting this article on the Weekly Standard, which would just be really huge. Uh, well, thank you. We're ready to tell the happy news because I'll tell you there's plenty of depressing news out there. And I believe that there is hope. In fact, I, you're the one who quoted the statistic that the happiest people are married people. <laughs> well, it's true. Statistically, it, it, it demographically every, in the aggregate. Every, every study ever conducted around the world, and there's a lot of international studies that have been done on this, on happiness all around the world. Uniformly, married people are the happiest people, and um, uh, second in line are people who are never married, and the most unhappy people are people who are divorced. Well, of course, so there that always, tells you. <laughs> there's got to be some exceptions out there, but and and I'm sure the kind of people listen to my show are the exceptions. But thank you for giving us an hour of your evening to enlighten us and share some hope, some good news. We'll have to plan another time when Michael Corte can join us because he is uh, also very insightful. I'd like to thank you for being on my show. And what's the name of the website for uh, Center for Marriage Policy one more time? Uh, that is marriagepolicy.org. Right. And if they want to get my newsletter, it's votecynthia.com. Although I'm not running for anything right now, but we, we all need to vote in a sense on uh, what we do every morning when we get up. So. Anyway, thank you for joining us, and uh, hope we get a chance to visit with you again sometime. Thank you. This has been another edition of Homefront on Missouri Grassroots Radio. I'm Cynthia Davis and hope you enjoyed our program. Please join us next week when we offer another infusion of truth, honesty, and solutions that will grow people bigger and shrink government smaller. Thank you for joining us. See you next week.